Okay, it's time. What shall we do for you for a Winter's Tale quiz since you came today when your classmates didn't? I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to make your lives easier because you came by planting a Winter's Tale. But you, you all spilled the beans anyhow. Um, so I guess I won't. But thank you for coming. It's nice. Um, I figure why cook with so few people here? We'll, we'll just, we'll send for takeout. Um, all right, today's mainly going to be about Cleopatra, but of course, um, talking about either of them is talking about both of them. I did want to look, though, at Antony's um, one other great scene of Antony and Eros, uh, with one that, that I alluded to a little bit. This is Act 4, Scene 15, um, which is page 2704 of the Norton. Um, and this is the scene where uh, Antony is giving up and um, sees things coming at, to an end. Um, so it's Antony and Eros come in, and Antony asks, Eros, thou yet beholdst me. Um, again, notice that it's, he's someone who is still seeable, still seen. He's aware of being seen. I, noble lord, says Eros, not at all wondering about that strange line. And then Antony, like Hamlet, starts talking about the clouds. Sometime we see a cloud that's dragonish, a vapor sometime, like a bear or lion, a towered citadel, a pendant rock, a forked mountain or blue promontory with trees upon it that nod unto the world and mock our eyes with air. So we see these things that look real, but they mock our eyes with air. The word mock in Shakespeare is a word that I pointed out a little bit, um, but one very much worth pursuing because the mockery means something like an imitation which turns out not to give you what you wanted. Richard II, again, at the end, calls himself a mockery king of snow who will turn into water, who will melt before the sun that is Bolingbroke, that is King Henry IV. He is a mockery king of snow. Um, Enobarbus, the soldier, has said to Enobarbus, nay, Enobarbus, do not mock me, I tell you true. But here these clouds mock our eyes with air. We wanted something that was more than air, but that's all there is. Um, Wallace Stevens will talk about good air, my only friend. That's all there is, is just the air. The ghost in Hamlet is described as being like the air when invulnerable, phantasmatic and invulnerable when Hamlet, excuse me, when Horatio and Francisco and uh, Marcellus go after it. Things turn into air in Shakespeare. That, of course, is what is going to be Prospero's great speech in The Tempest, that we are such stuff as dreams are made on. Everything disappears and becomes nothing, turns into air. And that's what Antony is saying here. 
Um, thou hast seen these signs. They are black vespers pageants. That is the shows, the pageants, that um, evening and the coming of night shows to the world, but they're only show. I, my Lord, and then Antony says, that which is now a horse, even with a thought, the rack disdains and makes it indistinct as water is in water. So the clouds just disappear as water disappears within water. It does, my Lord, says Eros, and Antony goes on, my good knave Eros, now thy captain is even such a body. Here I am Antony, yet cannot hold this visible shape, my knave. So this is, he is Antony, but he's dissolving. He's turning into the air around him. I cannot hold this visible shape, my knave. His thoughts throughout, and Cleopatra's as well, his image, imagery throughout is imagery of melting um, and melting away, melting into nothingness. And this is what is now happening. He can't even hold his visible shape. Earlier, he had called for um, officers and um, no one answers immediately. And he, he, he explodes and says, authority melts from me. Um, but he insists, I am Antony yet. So he's still Antony, yet he cannot hold his visible shape. Why? I made these wars for Egypt, he says. And the queen, whose heart I thought I had, for she had mine, which, whilst it was mine, had annexed unto it a million more now lost, she, Eros, has packed cards with Caesar and false played my glory unto an enemy's triumph. Nay, weep not, gentle Eros, there is left ourselves to end ourselves. Then Mardian comes in, fulfilling the order that Cleopatra has given him in the last scene, which is, say that the last I spoke was Antony and worded pretty piteously. So Mardian comes in, and um, Antony turns to him and says, Oh, thy vile, la thy vile lady, she has robbed me of my sword. Mardian says, No, Antony, my mistress loved thee, and her fortunes mingled with thine entirely. Antony doesn't want to hear it and says, No, Cleopatra will die. And Mardian now fulfills his errand. The last she spake was Antony, most noble Antony. Then in the midst, a tearing groan did break the name of Antony. So that's a classic death scene. Mardian knows how to do it. Um, Cleopatra has said, pretty, word it, word it pretty piteously, and he does word it piteously. Um, it's as though Shakespeare is saying, yeah, that's a standard way of doing it. That's not the way, when we actually get to Cleopatra's death, that's not the way this will be done. She rendered life, thy name so buried in her. Dead then, says Antony, dead. Here, oddly, to some extent, channeling Enobarbus. This is how Enobarbus had responded, you'll recall, to Fulvia's death. Dead? Dead. Fulvia? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not Shakespeare. Um, so now it's as though Antony is holding on 
to what's gone forever, to Ina Barbas in his response to Mardian, and to Cleopatra, whose death he can't believe. And the amazing thing is, he's wrong. She's not dead. It's a great gift that it turns out that she's giving him. Um, so here's a little anecdote. A couple of years ago, I went to see Antony and Cleopatra in New York at theater for a new audience um, with my son, Julian, who was then seven. Um, and it was an uncut production of the play, which is great if you're not seven. And, uh, but Jillian has a pretty good sense, or already had at the age of seven, a pretty good sense of dramatic form. And um, Antony, at this point, uh, falls upon his sword, and Jillian, who had been just fidgeting and rolling his eyes and um, just shaking his head in despair at how long the play was, and the M&Ms at intermission just weren't holding him anymore, um, said, Good, now he's killing himself, now it's gonna be over. Um, he whispered to me, and I think people on stage actually heard his whisper, it was rather a loud one. And I said, well, no, actually. Um, and in fact, Anthony doesn't die for another um, 20 minutes or so. Um, and then he finally dies. Um, after it turns out that Cleopatra is still alive and he has a reconciliation that he never dreamt of, at which point Julian said, good, now he's dead, now it's gonna end. Um, and I had to tell him, actually there's another complete act. <laughs> and he was just so peeved. Um, but, it, but the reason that I instance this anecdote um, is that it tells you something about what Shakespeare, who we've looked at messing with dramatic structure all the way back um, in Hamlet and King Lear. It tells you something about the way Shakespeare is using expected dramatic structure in order to enable completely unexpected um, uh, moments and scenes and situations. Leah, is your hand up? Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Uh, Anthony doesn't. No, he's. It's almost. A, he does about Fulvia. Yeah. Um, but it's almost as though there's nowhere left anymore, just because everything is dissolving. That is where you ask where someone died. I would. I mean, I would. I would um, uh, suggest you ask where someone died when you're solidly in the world and they aren't. Um, I think what replaces where here is since. Um, that is, it's no longer the case that he's sticking to this world and wishes she were still in it. That was his response to Fulvia. That's um, Laertes' response to, um, to Ophelia's death. I am in the world. She's not. That's terrible. I want her back in the world. Um, but what we're going to get here instead is um, Antony really does, I mean, what Shakespeare does is um, something that he first tried in Romeo and Juliet, which is he gets a symmetrical couple, um, each of whom can respond to the death of the other. In real life, that's rare. If you've read Don DeLillo's um, novel, White Noise, the haunting question the narrator keeps asking himself is, who will die first? Um, who is the one who's going to suffer the death of the other person? in the couple. In Romeo and Juliet and in um, Antony and Cleopatra, each person 
hears about the death of the other. So you get an odd symmetry, which is not something you get in real life very often, um, which is that you get to see the symmetry of their love and their relationship and their mutuality to each other um, continued through a trick. And the trick here is um, that Romeo thinks Juliet is dead, but she isn't. He kills himself, and Juliet wakes up to find that he's dead, and then she kills herself. So each has a great moving speech over and about the death of the other. Um, it doesn't quite feel right in an odd way. It's like what doesn't quite feel right about the trick in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is that Demetrius never gets the remedy for the, um, for the love juice. And because he doesn't get the remedy, it doesn't feel quite like the same kind of true love that the other lovers succeeded getting at the end of the comedy. But there, it's as though what Shakespeare is suggesting is there's always going to be an asymmetry when you try to represent mutuality. There's always going to be um, something that doesn't quite fit in right. Um, if it did fit in perfectly, um, you, what you might just get is infinite mirroring without any stabilization. Um, so there's a similar, not quite symmetry in the attempted symmetry in Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet's death and Romeo's passionate mourning of her, again, is predicated on her having taken a drug, just as Demetrius takes the drug in... Um, a Midsummer Night's Dream, Julian takes the uh, Julian quite a quite a slip. Juliet takes the drug um, that makes Romeo think that she's dead. Um, in Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare is breaking all the rules, and one of the rules that he's breaking is the desire for this kind of symmetry. That is, had Antony succeeded at suicide here, as Romeo succeeds at suicide immediately upon believing that Julia is dead, we would have gotten a kind of classical symmetry here, each mourning the death of the other. But instead, what we get is Cleopatra, we get Antony mourning her death, and then we get Cleopatra resurrected. You're going to see something very similar in The Winter's Tale. Um, Shakespeare is really interested in this sort of thing. He's been interested in it from the start. We get a similar resurrection in, amidst, in um, excuse me, in Much Ado About Nothing, where someone seems to be dead, but and, and the person um, who sort of loves her, mourns her, and then she comes back to life. But that person doesn't kill himself. Um, he's not even thinking about it. It's not on the horizon, even though um, he believes that he's responsible for her death. Um, here we have great grief, suicidal grief, and it leads to Antony's death. But he gets to see Cleopatra alive again, um, and, he gets, and he gets to see her alive again entirely Cleopatra-like. That is, she's tricked him. What she does throughout this play is sends false messages to Antony about what she's doing, how she's feeling, and so on. Um, what, uh, hang on to this moment, but we first see this in Act 1, Scene 3, 
when Cleopatra enters with um, her women. And Cleopatra says, where is he? We know, of course, who that he is. Um, we don't need to wonder. Um, I did not see him since, says Charmian. Um, perhaps the first instance of that word since. Um, Cleopatra then tells Alexis, see where he is, who's with him, what he does. I did not send you. So this is the first version of her sending of Marty and later. I did not send you means don't tell him that I sent you. Um, if, if you find him sad, say I am dancing. This is if you have the Norton page 2650. If you find him sad, say I am dancing. If in mirth, report that I am sudden sick. Quick and return. And then Charmian rebukes her, Madam, methinks if you did love him dearly, you do not hold the method to enforce the like from him. Cleopatra says, with genuine puzzlement, what should I do I do not? What do you mean? What am I doing wrong? Charmian says, if you were um, a, a member of a political party that wanted to get a soundbite out of Antony showing him to be, I mean out of, out of this play, showing Shakespeare to be a sexist pig, here would be your soundbite. Shakespeare advises that what women should do is, in each thing, give him way, cross him in nothing. Um, but that's what Charmian thinks, and Cleopatra is utterly amazed that she would say that. That teaches like a fool the way to lose him, she says. Um, the idea that the way to get a man's affection or to get Antony's affection is by being the, um, the, the subordinate in every single thing is insane. Charmian insists, tempt him not too far. I wish forbear. In time we hate that which we often fear. But here comes Antony and Cleopatra immediately says, I'm sick and sullen. Um, no, she's sulking. No way she's going to talk to him. Again, what Shakespeare is doing here is Charmian is given um, a kind of soothsayer-like warning, unanswered warning to Cleopatra. And um, we might think if um, we were um, new to Shakespeare... Um, that this warning was um, a, a signal of what was to come. That is, that we, often hate, we, we come to hate what we often fear, in time we hate that which we often fear, that the play is going to demonstrate how, that, how Antony does turn out to hate what he fears, which is Cleopatra. But it's not true in any way, this kind of... Um, standard thematic announcement of what's going to happen over the next four acts um, is irrelevant. Charmian and um, the soothsayer and everyone else, they don't get it. They almost get it often, especially Charmian, especially Eros, but no one, Antony and Cleopatra, really are peerless. And none of these other figures get what they get about each other. So that this idea of, um, of teasing Antony, not teasing him affectionately, but teasing him manipulatively, um, this idea of manipulating him by having her moods announced to him just in a way to affect him don't deny that about Cleopatra. The defense of Cleopatra, um, the, the praise of Cleopatra, which I am engaged in, 
has no need whatever to claim that she's not as bad as she sometimes seems. She's everything that she seems. And that's part of the point about Cleopatra, that to be as complex and complicated and willful and um, self-interested, but also other-interested and also um, spectacular and dramatic a figure as she is, there's only one person who is up to her and only one person who can um, not discount her for all the vividness of her character and not reduce her to um, some kind of manipulate her, the strumpet that Philo and Demetrius call her from the start. Only one person who can see that her grandness is partly in what Ina Barbas calls her infinite variety, and that that infinite variety consists also in um, always thinking about how she is appearing to others and thinking most intensely and with most um, um, interest in how she's appearing to Antony um, and appearing to him absolutely as an equal to him, um, that sending Mardian to tell him that she's dead, which leads him to his death, is not something to be held against her, because Antony certainly doesn't. It's something to um, allow us to see that the most important interaction that they have, the interaction that leads to both their deaths, is of a piece with every interaction that they have, which is ways that she has of fooling him and teasing him and, um, and ways that he has to love her for fooling him and teasing him. Remember that um, what, they re what they remember, what Cleopatra and her women remember with pleasure when Antony has gone off to Rome is the time that they went fishing. And Cleopatra um, had her servants dive underwater and put salt fish on Antony's lines um, and fresh fish on her own. And they wagered as to who would fish better. And of course, Cleopatra won. Um, and Antony, Antony was just so angry about that. And then Cleopatra's response is, that time, oh times, I laughed him out of patience. And then that night I laughed him into patience and I put my tires and mantles upon him and wore his sword, Philippin. So um, she does this wonderful thing with the fishing rods um, and then she teases him and laughs and he just can't stand it. And what's her response to his not being able to stand her laughter at him? She laughs some more and then he loves it. And that's always what happens is... He, it is only when he's with Cleopatra that he can remember and can come to be what he is at his grandest. It is only when he becomes impatient with her and then remembers her that he can be brought to be an Antony, to be what he really is. Without Cleopatra, that would never happen. Cleopatra doesn't need him to be Cleopatra but he is the only person that she cares enough about 
to be Cleopatra in that way. But he certainly needs her to be the Antony that he ultimately is in this play. And again, the way the play shows this, uses this, nails this down, is to have their great death scenes sandwiched around their, their last meeting and their last um, reconciliation to have that occur in exactly the same mode as all their other great moments of fighting and reconciliation have occurred. But one thing to notice, again, this is part of Shakespeare's radical structuring of this play, is the one scene that you would absolutely expect to have in this play, the one scene that's announced as the show-stopping important scene. It's announced when Ina Barbas says he won't leave her, never. Agrippa says now he must leave her utterly. And Ina Barbas, this is after Ina Barbas has described her, the barge she sat in like a burnished throne, burned on the waters. Um, and he ends that description, by the way, with the really important line, she did make defect perfection and breathless power breathed forth. That's what Cleopatra does, is she makes defect perfection and breathless, she breathes forth power. So um, Ina Barbas, then Agrippa says, wow, that's amazing. And Ina Barbas says, uh, and now and he must leave her utterly. And Ina Barbas says, never, he will not. He will to his Egyptian dish again. And Antony himself has said, um, although I make this marriage for my peace, in the East my pleasure lies. Um, and both those things are announcing the great moment when Antony and Cleopatra are going to be reunited. That is the show-stopping scene that the play is arranging for us. But we know by now that Shakespeare loves to point to the coming of show-stopping scenes and then not give them to us. Um, Hamlet does not kill Claudius when they're alone together on stage. There isn't a war between Norway and Denmark. There isn't a trial by combat between Mowbray and Bolingbroke. Whenever Shakespeare is arranging something for us so that we think we know what's going to happen next, and the only question is, will it be good enough? He doesn't give us that scene. He's, he, take, he pulls the rug out from under us. And that's what he does here. So he pulls the rug out from under us um, because we find out that Antony and Cleopatra have gotten back together again, only in the report made to Caesar about it. Um, the utterly disrespectful, dissing, disparaging report that's made to Caesar, which is, yeah, he did it in the marketplace. Um, they, they, um, he gave her children various provinces. They said that Caesarian was my father's son. Um, whom they call my father's son. That is, Caesarian is uh, Cleopatra's son by Julius Caesar um, and therefore a real political problem for, for Octavian. Um, Julius Caesar does actually have a son and a son by a queen. Um, 
And they did this all in the marketplace, in the common marketplace. They sat on seats there, which they called thrones. They declared themselves gods. It's all just too ridiculous. Um, and it's an utter um, deflation of what we think is going to be the show-stopping scene in the play, Antony's return to Cleopatra. But instead, we get that show-stopping scene when we're not expecting it, when Antony falls on his sword and now goes back to Cleopatra. And now they have uh, that reunion that we didn't see earlier. There's also been an er a, a somewhat earlier reunion after the second Battle of Actium when Cleopatra sees Antony and says, comest thou smiling from the world's great snare uncaught. Um, there he is, smiling. And he's uncaught. Um, he's back. Not for long, but he's back. So, Antony believes she's dead. We're back on page 2705, Act 4, Scene 15. Dead then? Dead. And then the great speech to Eros, unarm Eros, the long day's task is done and we must sleep. Um, that's a later version of, I am so lated in the world that I have lost my way forever. To Mardian, who's brought, her this, brought him this news, that thou departest hence safe, dost pay thy labor richly, go. So this is the one time when Antony is not superbly generous to the bringer of bad news. That's again a difference when it comes to Cleopatra. Off, pluck, off. The sevenfold shield of Ajax cannot keep the battery from my heart. Oh, cleave my sides. Heart once be stronger than thy continent. Crack thy fail, frail case. This is what um, Philo and Demetrius have talked about before. His goodly heart that kept his t its temper in his chest during the war. Eros apace, no more a soldier. Bruised pieces do. You've been nobly born from me a while. And then this great moment where he calls Cleopatra in the vocative by name. I will o'ertake thee, Cleopatra, and weep for my pardon. So now he's going to ask her for pardon. The dead Cleopatra, I will o'ertake thee, Cleopatra, and weep for my pardon. So it must be, that is so, I must die, I must overtake you. For now, all length is torture since the torch is out. Um, the Norton re-edits that line badly. Um, it's not, the way the Norton has it is, um, so it must be for now, all length is torture. Since the torch is out, lie down and stray no farther. Um, that's just a bad decision of Gary Taylor's. Um, it's actually, all length is torture since the torch is out, is how to read that line. And the idea is that the torch is gone. So if you lengthen the torch, which is out, it turns into torture. That's the lengthening of the torch. All length is torture. Staying alive any longer now that the torch is out is the replacement of that torch with torture. Lie down and stray no farther. Now all labor mars what it does, yea, very force entangles itself with strength. Seal then, and all is done. Eros, I come, my queen. Eros, stay for me, to her, again. Where souls do couch on flowers, 
wheel hand in hand and with our sprightly port make the ghosts gaze. So in the other life, we will also stand up peerless and all the ghosts will gaze upon us. And then he makes a famous mistake. Dido and her Aeneas shall want troops and all the haunt be ours. And then he calls for Eros. Come, Eros. Eros, he doesn't want to be alone anymore. Um, He wants Eros to kill him. The mistake that he makes, the footnote tells you, um, is that in the Aeneid, which is what he's referring to here, Aeneas, Dido has killed herself for Aeneas. Um, Aeneas has abandoned her in Carthage because he's going off to found, of all places, Rome. And um, that is the Roman, um, the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic. Um, Dido, um, he's abandoned Dido, much as Antony has earlier um, abandoned Cleopatra, so she thinks. He's abandoned Dido in Carthage and has gone um, to found Rome. And when he leaves her, Dido kills herself. Um, and um, has herself burned um, on, uh, on the beach, and Aeneas sees this and he feels guilty about it, but he's got to do the Roman thing, which is civic piety and civic virtue. Um, later on, he descends into the underworld, as one does in epics, from the Odyssey through... Um, the Aeneid through the Divine Comedy through Paradise Lost um, through um, the Amber Spyglass um, he descends into the underworld um, where he talks to the dead and among those in the underworld who come, whom he comes upon is Dido and he speaks to her and Aeneas says Um, He speaks of his guilt and his need, and um, he um, asks for his pardon from her, and she remains silent and turns away and leaves. So that's one of the most famous scenes in the Aeneid, um, a a much-discussed scene. Not everyone likes it, Um, but it's probably um, right to say that it's one of the greatest scenes in the Aeneid, and it's a scene of Dido's silence. Um, Antony's misremembering that scene. Shakespeare isn't. He knew his Aeneid quite well, as you know from Hamlet. Um, But it's the scene of Dido's silence. And um, so when Antony is thinking, oh, they must be having a good time in the other life, so will we, Antony's getting it wrong. We in the audience are going to hear this as at least we who have have, um, seats, who have tickets for seats in the audience. Um, are going to hear this as an irony at Antony's expense, and we're going to be wrong, because it's going to turn out that in this play, in which if there's another world, it's the Christian world. The reference to new heaven, new earth at the very start of the play is a quotation from the Revelation, um, from the book of Revelation. Um, And it's not where Antony and Cleopatra are going. But for Antony and Cleopatra, there isn't really another world. That's what we've been saying over and over again. There's only this world. And Antony, in desperation, is imagining, as Cleopatra will later imagine, um, seeing 
getting, getting a reunion again. But in this play, he gets it. He does get to go back to her. So, Eros, Eros, what would my Lord? And then that engulfing sense, since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. Um, that's the engulfing sense. It's partly engulfing because the formulation is past perfect. I have lived as though this has been going on for a long time. I that with my sword quartered the world and green Neptune's back with ships made cities condemn myself to lack the courage of a woman less noble mind than she which by her death our Caesar tells I am conqueror of myself. Um, so notice that the language that Cleopatra uses later in talking to Dolabella is language that Antony that's already prefigured in Antony's language here. As for his delights, they dolphin-like, they show dolphin-like above the element they lived in. Um, crowns and crownets were like plate dropped from his pocket. Um, she gets him. She describes him in much the same way, although much more extravagantly, but in the same terms that he describes himself, their language meshes. Antony and Cleopatra have a language that no one else does. Um, and what she will say is that, um, all, talking about Caesar in similar terms, is that Caesar won because he had good fortune, but if you think about it, tis paltry to be Caesar, she says. Tis paltry to be Caesar, not being fortune. He is but fortune's knave, a minister of her will. That is, if you want to be Caesar, all you're saying is um, you're riding the chances of history. Caesar didn't make history, he was made by it. He's not the king of the world. He's not the emperor of the Roman Empire. He's a servant of fortunes. That's all he is. But if you can take charge of your own life, how? Through suicide, she says. Um, and so does Antony. And so, to some extent, does Enobarbus. Then you are um, conquering the person who sought to conquer you. Um, and that's what Antony admires in Cleopatra, and that's what Antony attempts in himself. Okay, let's go back to um, Act 1, Scene 5, um, to look at the way that it's fundamental to Cleopatra to, as Antony will say in one of his um, vicious moments, to be a boggler, to be someone who teases, and um, to laugh into or out of and then into patience those she's with. So Antony is gone and Cleopatra is missing him. This is page 2654. And Charmian is saying, you think on him too much. Um, and Cleopatra calls that treason. Um, and um, Cleopatra calls for Mardian. 
what's your highness pleasure, Mardian asks, and she makes a dirty joke. Probably um, it's only in this play that you'll see women making the kind of bawdy jokes that men make um, in a lot of Shakespeare plays. Mardian, what's your highness pleasure, Cleopatra? Not now to hear thee sing, because eunuchs were supposed to sing with beautiful high voices. Um, and then she adds, I take no pleasure in aught an eunuch has, um, which is to say um, a eunuch doesn't have what she needs for pleasure. Um, I take no pleasure in aught an eunuch has. Tis well for thee that being unseminared, um, which they helpfully tell you means castrated, um, it's the same word as semen. Um, uh, the, um, you are no longer able to produce seed um, that being unseminared thy freer thoughts may not fly forth of Egypt um, which is to say that if you're thinking various things um, you won't because you've been castrated that won't be obvious um, if someone looks at your crotch um, and then she asks this interesting question hast thou affections Yes, gracious madam. That is, do you have these thoughts? Yes, gracious madam. Indeed, says Cleopatra. Not indeed, madam, for I can do nothing but what indeed is honest to be done. Yet have I fierce affections and think what Venus did with Mars. So there's just this nice little touch where Mardian is made human for us. Just in a few lines, it turns out that Mardian being a eunuch doesn't, it's, it's not like in The Giver, it doesn't um, take away um, from him the stirrings, as we say in German. Um, it doesn't take the stirrings away from him. Um, it doesn't um, relieve him of sexual frustration. It makes sexual frustration the actual condition of his life, frustration without any hope of satisfaction. Um, He's saying this here partly because um, we need to think of him and the question of um, the extent to which Cleopatra is supposedly castrating Antony, um, which is what Antony is going to say when he sees Mardian later. Your late, thy vile lady hath robbed me of my sword. Um, that's Antony calling her a castrating bitch. Um, but we're also supposed to see that um, all of that is not an end to sexuality, but is in fact a focus on sexuality. That everything Ant and Cleopatra do together is focused on taking their relationship, let's just call it their erotic relationship, as the central fact of this play. And that erotic relationship can manifest itself in any number of ways, including their anger at each other. This is not a play in which people who love each other aren't angry at each other. This is a play in which people who love each other are angry at each other to the very extent, the very height, the very immensity of their love for each other. So here's Mardian who has fierce affections but nothing to do with them, and he thinks this way just as Cleopatra is missing Antony. Oh, Charmian, where thinks thou he is now? Stands he or sits he or does he walk? 
or is he on his horse? Oh, happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. Another little bawdy joke, I hope you noticed. Um, and the more grotesque it seems to you, the better. There's nothing that Cleopatra is innocent of. There's no experience, including a kind of quasi-suggestion, only quasi, but still there, of a Catherine the Great experience. There's no experience that Cleopatra hasn't had. There's nothing that she doesn't know. Um, and what makes this so real and what makes her so real is that there's no denial of anything that makes a person human in her. Um, and what makes a person human is selfishness as much as generosity, um, is anger as much as expressions of love. And the only person adequate to taking her as fully human, including everything about her, which is not what a heroine on stage is supposed to be. We're supposed to fall in love with heroines because we're getting not a real woman, but an idealized woman. Cleopatra is in no way an idealized figure in this play. Her greatness comes from the fact that she's not idealized at all. And those who dislike her, those who say the play is about Antony's tragedy that he can't realize he should be at Rome and staying with Octavia, who does act in a way to lose him. Um, when Cleopatra says that teaches like a fool the way to lose him, um, what Charmian is teaching is the advice that Octavia would accept. Um, those who think Antony should stay in Rome are basically saying they like their women cut in half. They like their women made into certain kinds of noble characters, noble self-effacing um, characters with holy, cold, and sober dispositions um, who are attractive for that reason. We've seen this before in Hamlet. That is to say, what Ophelia is is essentially something that Hamlet can't handle. And Ophelia knows that he can't handle it, so we only really see what Ophelia is after the death of her father. Um, we talked a little bit about how much Ophelia knows about the obscene part of life, which you see in her songs and in what she says about the flowers. Ophelia knows a lot about sex, but when Hamlet tries to talk to her about that, she's very, very prudish. Not because she's fundamentally prudish, but because A, she knows what Hamlet is trying to do to her, which is embarrass and humiliate her, and B, because the reason this is embarrassing and humiliating is that men think it so, that she's in a male-dominated society where women are not supposed to feel sexual desire. That's what Hamlet says to his mother. At your age, at any rate, um, you should have no trouble keeping the hectic in the blood down. Um, Cleopatra is having none of that. And Cleopatra, um, the very idea that she would act in um, an Ophelia-like way is absurd to her. 
Um, and it's also, to some extent, absurd to her women when they're making the jokes about, well, if you were an inch of fortune better than I, where would you take that inch? Well, not in my husband's nose. Um, so here she's remembering her own sexual life. Do bravely, horse, for what's thou whom thou moves? The demi atlas of this earth, the arm and burgeonate of men. He's speaking now, and here she's imagining, as everyone throughout the play does, imagining Antony in his absence. He's speaking now, or murmuring, where's my serpent of old Nile? For so he calls me. That's again another wonderful moment when the privacy between them that, we've never, that we never see in the play, we get nevertheless her remembering such a moment. What do they do when they're snuggling after sex? He says, where's my serpent of old Nile? For so he calls me. Now I feed myself with most delicious poison. Um, again, you should understand or you should remember this line at the end. Feeding herself with most delicious poison. And then she addresses him again. Think on me that I'm with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. So just think on me, not as an idealized young woman, but as someone who has been baked black by the sun and wrinkled deep in time. Broad-fronted Caesar, she now calls upon the dead Julius Caesar, famous for his baldness. Broad-fronted Caesar, when thou wast here above the ground, I was a morsel for a monarch. And great Pompey would stand and make his eyes grow in my brow. There he would he anchor his aspect and die with looking on his life. So she's remembering her earlier sexual um, life, but only remembering it um, to think about Antony thinking about her now, um, thinking about the person she really cares about. Alexis comes in, sovereign of Egypt, hail! Who cares about you? How much unlike art thou, Mark Antony? Yet... Coming from him, that great medicine hath with his tink gilded thee. How goes it with my brave Mark Antony? Antony is sending her gifts. Um, Cleopatra asks about him. And whatever Alexis says, she's going to be happy. Um, and then she sends some more messages. And um, Alexis says, why do you send so thick? Cleopatra's response, this is line 62, who's born that day when I forget to send to Antony shall die a beggar. There's that word beggar again, um, which I hope you've been noticing. We won't talk much about it, but um, Cleopatra beggars all description. And Antony says there's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Now we should take that a little bit more seriously as understanding that there's beggary in a love that can delineate what is worthy of love. Cleopatra can't be reckoned. The love for Cleopatra, therefore, can't be reckoned because of her infinite variety. Um, welcome, my good Alexis. And then to Charmian again, did I, Charmian, ever love Caesar? So again, notice that what Shakespeare is seeing and getting is the extent which is, which is um, a through characteristic, a through line characteristic of Cleopatra, that she loves to talk about Antony. Antony doesn't spend a lot of time talking about Cleopatra. That's not his way. If he's talking about Cleopatra, it's bad news. 
when he talks about Cleopatra to anyone else, it's to say things like, I must from this enchanting queen break off or lose myself in dotage or thy mistress has betrayed me um, or Cleopatra did all this to me. Um, that's, Antony is not, is sufficiently Roman that he doesn't gush about being in love except to Cleopatra. But Cleopatra loves talking about Antony and loves having people talk to her about her love for Antony. And again, that's something that Shakespeare, who saw so many things for the first time as representable in drama, saw here. Did I, Charmian, ever love Caesar so? This is the tease, and now it's Cleopatra who will be teased. Oh, that brave Caesar, says Charmian. Cleopatra, be choked with such another emphasis. Say, the brave Antony. Charmian nods, the valiant Caesar. Cleopatra, by Isis, I will give thee bloody teeth if thou with Caesar paragon again, my man of men. So she's talked about Pompey, she's talked about Caesar, and she says they're not a patch on Antony. And Charmian says that's what you're saying now, but by your most gracious pardon, I sing but after you. I'm just repeating what you used to say back when Caesar was here. Oh, that brave Caesar. Oh, that valiant Caesar. And again, notice that this confirms how much she likes to talk about the guy she's in love with. It's something she really likes to do. She likes to tell Charmian how in love she is. Um, and then Cleopatra has the great reply to this. My salad days. That, by the way, is the origin of that phrase, if you've ever heard it. It comes from this speech. My salad days when I was green in judgment, cold in blood, to say as I said then. So, sure, I thought I loved Caesar. I was just so young then. I didn't know anything about love. Green in judgment, cold in blood. Um, so again, from the start, what the, I mean, the, here we are still in act one, but what the play is saying is that um, we're looking at a love which isn't, which is exactly the opposite of what Hamlet has said. Hamlet has said, at this age you can't feel love. Um, of course he's wrong. And it's important to understanding Hamlet that Gertrude does love Claudius. Hamlet's wrong about that. Um, and this play is the demonstration of just how wrong he is. That what Cleopatra is saying is the exact opposite, which is no person as young as I was then, no person in their teens and 20s can really experience love. You have to be as old as I am now with Phoebus amorous pinches black and wrinkled deep in time. Um, is your hand up? No. Okay. Um, let's go further on to, um, we looked a bit at the moment when Antony conveys his shame out of Cleopatra's eyes by looking what he has left behind, destroyed in dishonor. Um, and then Cleopatra, this is um, Act 3, Scene 11, when Cleopatra, you don't have to go to this, we've already talked about it, um, begs 
for her par- her pardon then um and we and antony is is ranting at her and all she says is pardon pardon and then without transition antony does fall not a tear i say one of them rates all that is won and lost this is going to happen again um in spades in a scene later. So Antony has sent his schoolmaster to Caesar. Um, everyone says that Antony must really now be um, almost exhausted of all resources if he has to send his schoolmaster who lately had superfluous kings for messengers. Not many moons gone by. Now he's sending his schoolmaster. And Phidias goes to see Cleopatra. Um, and first an ambassador comes in um, and Antony says, this is page 2693, 13, line um, 13 or so. Antony says to the ambassador, is that his answer? That is, they come in in conversation. Is that his answer? Antony asks the ambassador, I, my lord. Antony, just make sure he gets the message. The queen shall then have courtesy, so she will yield us up. The ambassador says, he says so. Um, that is, Caesar is going, that if Antony is given up, Cleopatra will get to stay queen of Egypt. And then Antony says, again, to our surprise, but as, a, as really good evidence of two things, his nobility and his judgment of hers. He says, let her know it. Not keep this silent, God knows what she'll do, but let her know it. And then he tells her, to the boy Caesar, send this grizzled head, his head, and he will fill thy wishes to the brim with principalities. He will do for you the very thing that she will later describe him as doing. And then Cleopatra has this amazing response. That head, my lord? Um, just think about, if you can, what writer would ever imagine having that as the response to Antony's speech. Um, it's, to me, unimaginable that, you know, it's easy to imagine writing, you know, great grandiloquent speeches. If only one commanded the eloquence to do it, one would be Shakespeare. Um, but you wouldn't, no matter how good you were at language. This is something Virginia Woolf talks about. No matter how good you were at language, um, what would it take to think of having that reply to that speech? That head, my lord, um, that moment, well, we know what it is. It's teasing affection right there. But it's an amazing thing for Shakespeare to think of. It's these, um, I, I talked about the microglot in Shakespeare. It's moments like this, which in a sense are the most astonishing because you can always know that you're going to get a great Shakespearean speech what you can't know is you're going to get something like this. And Shakespeare is more and more, as we get later in his career, you'll see this in The Winter's Tale as well, more and more it's these completely um, uh, tiny moments that are what he's doing that's new in these late plays. Antony understands that there's no way Cleopatra is going to do it, 
to him again, telling me where's the rose of youth upon him from which the world should note something particular. His coin, this is again Caesar's fortune's name, his coin ships, legions may be a cowards whose ministers would prevail under the service of a child as soon as in the command of Caesar. I dare him therefore to lay his gay comparisons apart and answer me, declined sword against sword, ourselves alone. I'll write it, follow me. And then Enobarbus is rolling his eyes. Right, Caesar might be that stupid um, that he's going to do that. Um, there's some chance that Obama will just shoot foul shots with Mitch McConnell to see whether financial reform gets passed or not. Um, and then in comes Thidius. Um, Enobarbus here, this is a, just before Thidius comes in, Enobarbus says, um, he that can endure to follow with allegiance a fallen lord does conquer him that did his master conquer and earns a place in the story. And I said, I think that's what Dolabella is doing later. So I just wanted to point that out to you. Then here's Thidius trying to cut a deal with her. Um, and Cleopatra is listening. Right after Antony has thought she wouldn't listen, she starts listening. Um, The renowned Caesar entreats, says Thaddeus, not to consider in what case thou standst further than he is Caesar. So all you have to think about your situation is to realize that he's Caesar. Go on, and this is like saying, would you praise Caesar? Say Caesar, go no further. Cleopatra, go on, right royal. So she's encouraging him. She wants to hear the deal. He knows that you embraced not Antony as you did love, but as you feared him. Cleopatra, oh. Um, a lot depends on how you say that, oh. But what Thidius is basically saying is um, Caesar is going to accept that you don't really love Antony and um, he's not going to punish you because you were involved with him. Oh, says Cleopatra. The scars upon your honor, therefore, he does pity as constrained, blemishes not as deserved. Um, so all the bad talk about you and Antony, he sees you as the victim of Antony. And Cleopatra hedging her bets. That is, she's not saying, oh man, this is a way out, that's great. Um, what she's always doing is hedging her bets. She does that even after Antony's death. She doesn't describe how much wealth she has. Um, says to Thidius, he is a god and knows what is most right. My honor was not yielded, but conquered merely. Um, so she's agreeing with Thidius's representation of what Caesar will agree to. Enobarbus is unhappy about this. To be sure of that, I will ask Antony. And Enobarbus sees Cleopatra, imagines Cleopatra abandoning him. Sir, sir, thou art so leaky that we must leave thee to thy sinking, for thy dearest quit thee. Shall I say to Caesar what you require of him? For he partly begs to be desired to give. Um, Cleopatra listens. What's your name? My name is Thidius. And then Cleopatra gives this message. Most kind messenger, say to great Caesar, this in deputation, I kiss his conquering hand, tell him I am prompt to lay my crown at his feet and there to kneel till from his all-obeying breath I hear the doom of Egypt. Thidius kisses her hand um, and Cleopatra again thinks of the past. Your Caesar's father oft, when he hath mused of taking kingdoms in, bestowed his lips on that unworthy place as it rained kisses. 
Um, notice that one thing she's doing for Thidias, even if she remembers Julius Caesar, is that she is acknowledging Octavian as Caesar's son, um, which is important to him. So she's definitely hedging her bets here. Enobarbus is shocked. We shouldn't deny it. Antony storms in, favors, because Enobarbus has told him, favors by Jove the thunders, what art thou, fellow? Kissing Cleopatra's hand. One that but performs the bidding of the fullest man, and Enobarbus says, you will be whipped. Because Enobarbus, like Eros, knows Antony. You will be whipped, and Antony then has him whipped. Approach there to Cleopatra. To Cleopatra, ah, you kite! Now gods and devils, authority melts from me. When I cried, ho, like boys unto a musk, kings would start forth and cry, your will, have you no ears? I am Antony yet. Um, and then um, Antony has Thidius whipped, moon and stars, line 95, whip him. We're 20 of the greatest tributaries that do acknowledge Caesar, should I find them so saucy with the hand of she here. What's her name since she was Cleopatra? Whip him, fellows, till like a boy you see him cringe his face and whine aloud for mercy. Take him away and whip him. And then Cleopatra tries to intervene at line 110. And this is um, what I want us to get to. Good, my lord. Anthony, you've been a boggler ever. But when we in our viciousness grow hard, O misery on it, the wise gods seal our eyes in our own filth, drop our clear judgments, make us adore our errors, laugh at us while we strut to our confusion. Oh, is it come to this, says Cleopatra. Antony's anger knows no bounds. I found you as a morsel cold upon dead Caesar's trencher. That is, you were his leftovers, literally. Um, you were a piece of the food that he didn't eat. Um, this is probably as disgusting as an, Im an image as you're going to find in Shakespeare. I found you a morsel cold upon dead Caesar's trencher. Nay, you were a fragment of Gnaeus Pompey's, besides what hotter hours unregistered in vulgar fame you have luxuriously picked out. For I'm sure that you can guess what temperance should be, you know not what it is. You've never not had sex with whoever offered. Wherefore is this, says Cleopatra? We know wherefore. To let a fellow that will take rewards and say, God quit you. This is like Horatio and Hamlet talking um, about Osric. To, take a, to let a fellow that will take rewards and say, God, quit you, be familiar with my playfellow, your hand, this kingly scene and plighter of high, seal and plighter of high hearts. Oh, that I were upon the hill of basin to roar the horned herd, for I have savage cause, and to proclaim it civilly were like a haltered neck, which does the hangman thank for being yare about him. Is he whipped? Soundly, my lord. Cried he and begged he pardon? He did ask favor. And then Antony says to Thidias, so, I get some revenge. Um, and then Thidias leaves and Cleopatra says to Antony, have you done yet? Antony, now deeply sorry for himself. Thidias has been whipped and Antony has gone from anger towards self-pity. Alack, our tarrying moon is now eclipsed and it portends alone the fall of Antony. And then Cleopatra has the great line, I must stay his time. That is, I have to wait while he continues ranting and continues this self-pity. Again, notice how much this is her knowing him. I must stay his time. 
I just have to wait till he's done. I know what he's going to do next. Um, and all I have to do is wait. I must stay his time. Finally, Antony, to her, um, addresses her really. Instead of simply cussing her, he asks, angrily, but asks, to flatter Caesar, would you mingle eyes with one that ties his points? That is, to one who, is, who dresses up in the latest court fashion. And then Cleopatra, who's been staying his time, now asks the great question, not know me yet. Don't you know me yet? Don't you know that, of course, I would flatter Caesar that way? That's who I am. Of course I would. How can you still not get that about me? And how can you think that that matters to what we are? And Antony then just gets confirmation for that. Cold-hearted toward me? So notice that echo, not know me yet. Cold-hearted toward me? Antony asks, each is talking of themselves with respect to the other. And then Cleopatra's great reply, ah, dear, if I be so, if I'm ever cold-hearted toward you, from my cold heart let heaven engender hail and poison it in the source and the first stone drop in my neck as it determines, so dissolve my life. The next Caesarian smite, that is, her son by Caesar, till by degrees the memory of my womb together with my brave Egyptians all, all the people of Egypt, by the discandying of this pelleted storm, that is the hail that would come from her cold heart, till all my brave Egyptians, and that's her version of what Antony will later call his sad captains, till all my brave Egyptians, my brave Egyptians all by the discanting of this pelleted storm lie graveless till the flies and gnats of Nile have buried them for prey. And then Antony, she stayed his time. And Antony says, I am satisfied. And again, that credits both of them enormously. That Antony is satisfied this quickly, which he always is with Cleopatra. Um, he gets over his rage at her very quickly because he does know her and does know the largeness of her soul. And then he's ready. Caesar sits down in Alexandria where I will oppose his fate. Our force by land hath nobly held. Our severed navy too hath knit again and fleet, threatening most sea-like. Where hast thou been, my heart? Dost thou hear, lady? If from the field I shall return once more to kiss these lips, I will appear in blood. I and my sword will earn our chronicle. There's hope in it yet. And he's right. All of that's true. That's my brave lord, says Cleopatra. Um, Shakespeare is liking that phrase. He's going to use it very um, tellingly in The Tempest, where... Um, Prospero will say to Ariel when Ariel does something good, that's my brave spirit. And Ariel, or that, that's, yeah, that's my brave spirit. And Ariel will later res respond, that's my noble master. Um, that moment of recognition, um, of intimate recognition, intimate and friendly recognition, Shakespeare likes that. 
Um, I will be treble, sinewed, hearted, breathed, and fight maliciously, for when mine hours were nice and lucky, men did ransom lives of me for jests. But now I'll set my teeth and send to darkness all that stopped me. Come, let's have one other gaudy night. Call to me all my sad captains, right after my brave Egyptians all. Fill our bowls once more. Let's mock the midnight bell. That's the good mockery. Mock the midnight bell. And then Cleopatra has this amazing surprise line. It is my birthday. I had thought to have held it poor. But since my lord is Antony again, I will be Cleopatra. So all of this is happening on her birthday. And now they're going to party. Um, my lord is Antony again, and so I will be Cleopatra. It is her birthday, and she's reborn as Cleopatra. Why? Because he's Antony again. Um, the quickness with which they reconcile is a credit and a crucial credit to both of them. Um, she knows that he will burn out and then say not know me yet or that she will say not know me yet and he will say cold hearted towards me and she knows that when he remembers who she is his response will be love the mistake he made with Thid with Thidias was to think not it wasn't a mistake to think that she was um, checking out her options and um, playing um, the angles, of course she was. playing. She was playing the percentages. The mistake that he made was to think that that meant that she didn't love him um, and that she wasn't completely what she always was for him um, and what he knew that she was. Um, of course she's playing the percentages. Um, but that's part of who she is and part of what he loves. Okay, let's go finally to Act 5. Um, in Act 5, Scene 2, um, at the very beginning, Cleopatra says, my desolation begins to make a better life. That is, she's thinking of how she will die. My desolation begins to make a better life. Tis paltry to be Caesar. This is what I quoted for you before. Not being fortune, he's but fortune's knave, a minister of her will. And it is great to do that thing that ends all other deeds. That is, suicide is great. It is great to do that thing that ends all other deeds, which shackles accidents and bolts up change, which sleeps and never pallets more the dung that beggars nurse and Caesar's. Um, so I never have to worry about this again. And here, notice she's sounding a little bit like Hamlet again, um, how a king can make a progress through the guts of a beggar. The dung is the beggar's nurse and Caesar, because um, everything we eat grows out of dung, grows out of fertile soil. Um, she's then captured by Percolius. Uh, she talks to Dola Bella. Um, she finally has her one scene with Caesar, um, and then um, she's left um, alone, and um, the clown comes in with the um, asp, 
the rural fellow, we're now on page 2718. Um, and um, this is the man, the guardsman says, avoid and leave him. And she turns to him and says, hast thou the pretty worm of Nihilus there that kills and pains not? Um, and the clown warns against using the asp. Truly I have him, but I would not be the party that should desire you to touch him, for his biting is immortal. Um, that's a joke, but a deep joke. Um, Cleopatra will pick it up. I have immortal longings on me. What he means to say is his biting is mortal, but by being mortal, it's what makes her immortal. No longer someone to be led in triumph by Caesar. Those that do die of it do seldom or never recover. Only Shakespeare would start putting this funny spooner, these funny spoonerisms or, or malapropisms, rather, um, into the mouth of someone in this death scene. Rememberst thou any that have died on it? Very many, men and women too. I heard of one of them no longer than yesterday, a very honest woman, but something given to lie, as women should not do, but in the way of honesty. Notice that this is all a great description of Cleopatra. Women shouldn't lie, but in the way of honesty. She was a very honest woman, but very given to lie. How she died of the biting of it, what pain she felt. Truly, she makes a very good report of the worm. But he that will believe all that they say shall never be saved by half that they do. But this is most valuable. The worm's an odd worm. Um, so all of this is funny, as, especially if performed right. Um, but it's also thematically absolutely apposite. The worm is, is both being represented as a source of death. It will soon be represented as the child that, that, um, that sucks its nurse asleep. And it's also phallic as well, which is part of the joke here. Um, Get thee hence farewell. I wish you all joy of the worm, says the clown. Um, farewell. You must think this, look you, that the worm will do his kind. Aye, aye, farewell. Look you, the worm is not to be trusted, but in the keeping of wise people. For indeed, there is no goodness in the worm. You can imagine how Julian was feeling here, as the clown wouldn't leave her with the asp that Julian knew she was finally going to use. He's actually saying, now she's going to kill herself, then it'll be over, and it still wasn't happening. Um, very good. Give it nothing, I pray you, for, what it, for it is not worth the feeding. Um, finally, he wishes her joy of the worm and leaves. Um, and then she says, give me my robe, put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me. Its biting is immortal. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grave shall moist this lip. And um, then she says, as her last words are almost, I hear Antony call. I see him rouse himself to praise my noble act. I hear him mock, again, the luck of Caesar which the gods give men to excuse their after wrath. Husband, I come. Why husband? They're not married. But she says, now to that name my courage prove my title. That is, this death is for her the moment of marriage. By applying the phallic and childlike worm to her so as to die, she becomes married to him. Now to that name my courage prove my title. I am fire and air picking up on Antony's water in water. My other elements I give to base her life. So, have you done? Come then and take the last warmth of my lips, kissing her women. Farewell, kind Charmian. Iris, long farewell. And Iris dies, and she can't believe it. Have I the aspect in my lips? Does it fall? Um, is she going to get to Antony before me? And then Cleopatra, this proves me base. 
if she first meet the curl at Antony, he'll make demand of her. Remember, since Cleopatra died, I have lo lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. And then um, she takes the worm and dies. Her last words, these last speeches are amazing. The one thing I just point out to you um, is that she um, wishes that um, she sees that Caesar is beguiled and um, she now gets to see um, Caesar called an ass unpolicied um, is the phrase, I'm not finding it right this second, but is the phrase um, that's used. Oh yeah, here it is, um, at line 298. Oh, couldst thou speak, Cleopatra says to the ass, that I might hear thee call great Caesar ass unpolicied. That modulates into the description of Cleopatra as a lass unparalleled. Um, and she is. And Caesar comes and even he is defeated by them and has them buried together. Okay, quick ending to astonishingly great play. Um, Winter's Tale for Tuesday. There'll be a quiz on Friday. Um, 